I want to talk to you about the coming reset and opportunity that that reset represents for the church. I believe that according to scripture, the eventual collapse of Western civilization is inevitable. This collapse will mark the beginning of the final epoch, culminating in the Lord's return. With partial success, Western cultures have blended Christian ethics with hedonistic economics, human supremacy through science and technology, and social salvation through statism. Scripture refers to this unholy mixture of Christian ethics with humanism as Babylon. Like nuclear fusion, Western culture forces together contrary elements until it explodes in unimaginable destruction. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of believers, are presently feeling the ripples of tectonic shifts. These tremors are manifesting in school board uprisings, dizzying political swings, vaccine fears, increasing political power grabs, and other social disruptions that make all sorts of conspiracy theories seem increasingly less crazy. Christians have tolerated this progressively hostile culture only because the antagonism has been so subtle until now. They've been duped by the mystery of it, gobbling up the mantras about science and progress as mere secular changes without spiritual significance. So they have failed to see the end result of how by simply following along with predominant trends, the basis of all their convictions, values, families, and lifestyles would be dismantled. To this point, they have failed to consider why Scripture calls the confused mixture not just Babylon, but Mystery Babylon. But as they are confronted with the undeniable consequences of these creeping changes, the mystery will disappear. Then an exodus will ensue. So, in spite of all the turmoil and hardship of this time, we see the prospect of something extraordinarily exciting to anticipate. Until the last few years, this collapse of which I speak has been staved off by the United States, perhaps more than any other corporate entity on earth. But today we see the pillars of even that society beginning to crumble. You may be able to knock out one of the pillars of a large building without bringing the whole edifice down. You might even knock out two or three, and despite the inevitable shaking you will feel, convince yourself that nothing has changed. Yet, like a Jenga tower, there comes a tipping point where one more loss brings down the whole structure. I would submit that Christian familial values served as one essential pillar in our society. That pillar is now down. I would submit that truth, not your truth or my truth, but absolute objective truth, was another such pillar in our society. And that pillar is now also gone, at least from the most essential influential institutions in our society, such as media and education. It has been replaced by relativism, I would even go so far as to say that one of the main pillars that Western culture has now knocked out was not only a mere vestigial belief in God, but specifically belief in God as the creator. 
This has been replaced by an all-encompassing belief that human beings can be their own creators and define themselves in any way they desire. And as crucial as all these fallen pillars were, perhaps the pillar that has carried more structural weight than any other has been the uniquely American view of justice, an independent judiciary specifically. I submit that the building will not survive the collapse of this particular buttress in our society. Justice is primarily a quest for truth, resulting in the fair distribution of penalties or power and consequences. Once that is gone, turmoil and the rule of arbitrary power become the norm. The Lord speaks through Isaiah. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadow. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. If people are writing histories in a hundred years from now, I wager they will identify 2016 and 2020 as irreversible pivots in the inexorable breakdown of our society. It's admittedly difficult to contemplate these shifts without being sucked into the narrative of either the left or the right, but I believe an accurate picture sees the shift as the responsibility of both sides. From a Christian, allegorically speaking, It might be helpful to contemplate the two parties in America, left and right, kind of like Judah and Samaria. In the biblical narrative, we see that while both of these factions had good and bad qualities, Samaria generally stayed ahead of Judah in its rush toward compromise, apostasy, and self-destruction. I see the left and right of our nation as somewhat analogous to this. The left adopted the idolatry of human salvation and messianic statism long ago. While the right has been much slower to embrace this idolatry, it is now following the same trajectory. Historically, conservative Americans tended not to look for messianic political solutions or leaders. They saw voluntary society as the ideal context for pursuing and realizing the good of life loving, helping, and improving lives. Conversely, they saw the state as fulfilling an almost entirely negative function, punishing criminals, protecting borders, and repelling aggressive nations. In contrast, 
For over a century, the left has posited their hopes for society's improvement in the state. They have believed that good government, through educating their young, healing their sick, feeding their poor, clothing their naked, and other programs, would create the beautiful society humanity dreamed of. So it was not surprising when they got chills down their legs while listening to Barack Obama or hyperventilated with ecstasy during the speeches of radical statists like Mario Como and his ilk. But now a change has occurred on the right, and we must not deceive ourselves by ignoring it. We are witnessing from so-called conservatives the same, might I say, cult-like emotional adulation toward Donald Trump. He is not merely a politician. He is an icon who stirs the fervor, not of voters, but of followers. This may seem to be only a superficial change, but it is a seminal shift signaling the rise of the kind of political idolatry on the right that has always marked the left. Judah, so to speak, has a new god, populist nationalism. A dispassionate look at the right's newest hero raises some unavoidable questions. He was a Democrat until 2009, contributed massively to Hillary Clinton's Senate campaign, was pro-abortion until he wasn't, exhibited brash, brazen bully tactics, was married as a serial monogamist, is known to be a philanderer, is a billionaire from Manhattan who calls his own autobiography the second best book after the Bible. No dispassionate observer among Christian conservatives could have been induced to call this man a conservative before his run in 2016. He is anything but Despite his many personal and character flaws, he is viewed as a winner by many on the right, and that is enough. It seems that his unscrupulous tenacity for ego domination is somehow connected to his success, which is why his barbarities are often overlooked when they align with the right's political agenda. We can find pertinent lessons for our times from the stories of Sodom, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Nineveh, and Herod. We discover that judgment and chaos were released when these people and nations crossed some critical line of brazen pride in the face of God. I would point out that none of these entities belonged to God's covenant people. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Nineveh, Herod, Sodom, they weren't good places before judgment. None of them were categorically sanctioned of Yahweh, yet all of them enjoyed at least inaction from angelic judgment until they crossed some pivotal line of hubris in the face of their maker. In the same manner, it would seem as though Christian nationalism may have crossed a similar line in recent years. And I'm not convinced that it's prudent to view the calamity of COVID and its triggered government overreach as entirely detached from the collective pivot occurring in the attitudes and values and politics of our nation at that time. I'm suggesting that the changes erupting around us, from COVID to wars to government overreach, unscrupulous indoctrination of children, and so on, might all be seen as a kind of judgment, you might say, when considered through a biblical lens. 
Regardless, injustice has become the cry of our times. The left clamors against the right's perceived injustice against minorities and underclasses. The right boils in rage against the politically driven prosecutions and persecutions of their champion. In contrast, just 50 years ago, Richard Nixon resigned with dignity when his proximity to scandal cost him entirely the support of even his own party in Congress. Why? Why would he back out of the fray? Why would he put the country first? Because as a society, Americans at that time subscribed to a standard of justice that transcended their politics. This is no longer the case. We are entrenched not in a political row, but in a religious jihad where morality, right and wrong, are in the balance. And constituencies seem willing to follow their heroes even right over the abyss. In 2016, a series of dreams and warnings came to various church members in our congregation, seeming to indicate that America was at a pivot point in her history and that our nation was going to cross some Rubicon from which there would be no return. Before President Trump was even nominated as his party's choice, I myself had a dream that I briefly shared with the church at the time. I have had many dreams, some inconsequential and some from God. This dream felt like one of the latter. In my dream, I witnessed a large crowd of people standing at the rim of what seemed to be a massive crater. They were looking with dreadful awe into the crater, onto a scene that resembled a World War II battlefield. The onlookers cupped their hands over their mouths or slumped to the ground, grabbing themselves by their knees, doubled over in a state of total shock. Mangled steel and parts of buildings littered the crater and smoke filled the air. It was a shambles of devastation. Although it was unclear what had happened, in the dream, I suspected a bomb might have gone off. Despite the situation's severity, in the dream, I felt myself frustrated at the people's reaction. Why, you ask? These were good, respectable Christians, gaping in astonishment, dumbfounded by the event. And in my dream, I felt that they should have known the event was coming, that their shock was misplaced, therefore. Did this trouble in the scene predict a specific event or calamity, or was it allegorical of an approaching societal upheaval or collapse? I can't say that. God didn't show me if the scenes in the dream were literal or figurative. In my dream, I walked along the crater's edge to where I was looking up into the downturned faces of the onlookers, and I was rebuking them. You should have prayed against this man, I said to them, as if to reproach their foolish astonishment at what seemed inevitable. That was the whole dream. Nobody said who the man was, but it felt understood. As a local body, we responded to this dream with earnest prayer, as we should have. Still, I'm not sure that the dream was merely intended to get this small congregation to pray. 
Instead, I'm afraid it was an insight into coming events which could have only been avoided by a degree of spiritual vision and awareness that was tragically and dismally lacking in the modern church in America. Conservatives look back at the FBI Justice Department's mobilization against a then-sitting president in pursuit of now-disproven allegations spawned from his political opponent. They see how Hillary Clinton went scot-free for her actual violations, which James Comey of the FBI later admitted. They contrast that handling of Hillary's scandal to the three and a half years of nonstop investigation against President Trump for something that is now considered a hoax, the Russia collusion hoax. And conservatives are incredulous to see how the pillar of justice is cracking in their view under our society. You may say, but it's not cracking. That doesn't really matter. If people believe and perceive that it is cracking, then in actuality, it's cracking. Now on the heels of these historic overreaches against a president, subsequently renounced as baseless and persecutorial, the same president now has over 90 charges, felony charges, from justice departments ranging from the U.S. Justice Department to Manhattan to Georgia coming against him. 90 criminal counts. Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz, a career Democrat and Clinton donor, widely discredits these prosecutions. Left and right condemn the Alvin Bragg Manhattan prosecution as ludicrous and certain to fail on appeal. Still, None in their right mind can expect a Manhattan jury to separate their political feelings from the defendant before them and issue a fair verdict for the very man 90% of New Yorkers voted against. The district attorney in Atlanta, Georgia has charged 19 of Trump's top administration officials with crimes ranging from conspiracy to fraud and sedition. Again, pundits on both sides claim that such charges will be tough to prove and have no historical basis. Conservatives understandably believe that the justice system is no longer independent, but has become the most deadly tool in the political arena. Simultaneous to these regional charges, the U.S. Justice Department has charged the former president with incitement to sedition and other high-level felonies. Additionally, they have charged him with scores of crimes related to his handling of classified documents. In none of these cases is the former president being accused of a crime that the average population can readily relate to, such as murder or burglary or battery and the like. It appears to the population like another political witch hunt, just like the last one that lasted three and a half years. It looks like the Justice Department is weaponized by the political left to persecute or prosecute the mishandling of papers after having ignored Clinton's violations, such as destroying hard drives with hammers in her garage and wiping evidence with bleach bit from hard drives. To at least half the nation, the blindfold, has been torn from the eyes of Lady Justice, and her sword is stabbing one side on behalf of the other. Folks, we've never been here before, not even close. Our boat as a nation has slipped its moorings, and we are adrift in uncharted waters. 
And we would be blind, naive fools in the words of Jesus to fail to read the signs of these times. So I return to my first idea. Western civilization will collapse. And the current political upheaval in America signals the fracturing of its most essential pillar, justice. And when it does collapse, what happens then? Some may imagine that anarchy will be released and pandemonium will take over all of what is now the United States. There will doubtless be places and seasons in which such conditions prevail throughout the nation as much of the world transitions to a new era. But make no mistake, human power has never been greater than now. Technologies created by human intelligence have never been so thorough and ubiquitous. The specter of collapse while bringing dread to the hearts of many titillates the imagination of our society's most ambitious power brokers. This is articulated in the vision for what has been termed by the World Economic Forum the Great Reset. They look with great anticipation toward the opportunity of reshaping society. Messianic states are salivating at the thought of an end to this current model that we call Western civilization. They see it as their best chance to remake the world as it should be, according to their own salvific utopian ideals. Some imagine that we are already living in a post-Christian society, and while that is a valid depiction of institutions like media and academia, we underestimate the extent to which Christian values still influence our culture. We cannot even conceive of a brand new model actually divorced from the ethics that informed and still inform this nation. The Constitution is a document codified 250 years ago, and like it or not, it was established when people had a completely different view of family, church, human origins, science, sexuality, statism, and personal liberty. If you tally up the sources referenced by the Founding Fathers in the Constitutional Conventions, you will find scores of sources. John Knox, various philosophers, they even reference the French Revolution, though entirely negatively. But if you were to find the second most quoted source, the Bible is quoted 30 times more than that. We should not underestimate the totality of difference between the Christian-influenced culture of today, compromised as it may be, and the future societies which will be grounded and established free of every Christian value and ethic. And maybe not just free of them, but in antagonism to them. The concept of democracy that truly limits power and diversifies authority may no longer endure. The American political system is built on the presupposition of human imperfection and therefore the need to limit inevitably flawed human power. However, a new hierarchy of governance has long since emerged and is now increasingly uncontested in predominant sectors of Western culture over the last 250 years. I'm talking about the supremacy of scientific expertise. Doctors don't gain their position by winning elections, nor do scientists such as Dr. Fauci. They are not seen as practitioners of 
subjective personal worldviews, but of scientific reality, a reality which is ostensibly deemed to be objectively, transparently true. Thus, science stands outside of democracy, not subject to left or right or majority opinions. So the incredible power increasingly handed to the scientific elite is based on the universal acceptance of their truth claims, something unprecedented in the realm of political governance until now. As artificial intelligence gains trust and becomes perceived as essentially accurate and increasingly infallible, it will inevitably replace the antiquated need for democracy. In short, the future's AI system will bring the uncontested expertise of science into the political sphere, ending the need for debate and dissent. We want our power diversified across many bodies of government. Even though this is inefficient, we want this because humans are imperfect. They make bad decisions. But once we can overcome the fallibility of human decision-making and trust a computer system that is the collected expression of billions of human thoughts, once we trust that is infallible, then we don't need the inefficiency of democracy anymore. We're going to increasingly move toward a computer-controlled form of governance. This is already expressed and seen to some degree in the way polls and, and public perception is used and public data is used to win election and to guide decisions in Congress or elsewhere. A Smithsonian writer depicts a futuristic view of an AI-governed society. He says, quote, civil rights drones fly over police pods as they race to the scene of a crime, one AI watching over another AI for the protection of humankind. Each police station in Lagos or Kuala Lumpur has its own lie detector AI that is completely infallible, making crooked cops a thing of the past. Hovering over the bridges in Kuala Lumpur are psych drones that watch for suicide jumpers. I believe the day will come when artificial intelligence will educate both our children and adults, diagnose our diseases, monitor and control our trade and economy, adjudicate our crimes, and essentially govern our society. Artificial intelligence is the ultimate culmination of mankind's ambition and the corporate project which was first attempted with the Tower of Babel. It is an amalgamation of our collective intelligence and effort to attain the status of God. Consider this. If you could encounter an entity that possessed in totality the intelligence and knowledge and wisdom of every human being without any of their imperfections, would you not be face to face with God? This is the one whose image we were created to reflect. AI, on the other hand, is a counterfeit deity. The incarnation of humankind's accumulated wisdom and ideas manifesting as a mighty tree of knowledge. Artificial intelligence is the modern-day god, an avatar through which to worship human knowledge incarnate in technology. So the collapse of Western culture is a terrifying prospect for many, 
and will present a grand opportunity for those who have chafed against Christianity's influence on society until now. And yet, this opportunity will be twofold. A large contingent of Christians who, like the proverbial frogs, have been soaking in the gradually warming cauldron of Babylon's mixed culture, placidly unaware of the devil's insidious intentions, will finally jump out. There will be a great exodus. I believe it with all my heart. Scripture reveals that only a remnant of Christians will survive the onslaught of the coming age. If John the Revelator marveled at Babylon, will not the remnant barely preserve its faith? Only those with the deepest level of commitment, whose lives and actions prove their faith as a present, ongoing reality, will even stand a chance in the coming days. But the remnant may be a lot bigger than many of us imagine. The collapse of the mixed culture will present the most significant opportunity for the bona fide culture of Christ to finally emerge on the face of the earth. Like the scoffers in Peter's day, some may be tempted to mock at such a notion, pointing to the fact that such a culture has never materialized. But that time will most certainly come. When the Apostle Peter stood before the temple in the book of Acts, he spoke about how Jesus would remain in heaven until, in his words, the time of the restoration of all things spoken of by the prophets. This means that the restoration Peter spoke of has yet to come to pass so long as Jesus remains in heaven. The book of Acts sets the standard for believers to aspire to in terms of truth and power. However, Peter anticipated a yet future restoration and revelation that would be required to usher in the Lord's return, something surpassing the church even of his day. This Christian society will emerge in stark contrast and conflict to man's Tower of Babel project, which by that time will have become the universal Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. Scripture tells us that this restored church will be a kingdom. It says that the mountain of Yahweh's house will be exalted above all other mountains, referring to nations allegorically as mountains. The prophets that Peter referred to said that the kings of the earth would see the success of the Lord's kingdom and stream to her from the four corners of the earth, asking that Zion teach them her ways. Jesus showed no interest when offered all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he insisted to Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. John further declared that all worldly kingdoms lie under the evil one's control. Thus, any world rulers asking to be taught by Zion will be abandoning their worldly thrones and political powers of death to become true sons of Zion, the city of peace, Jerusalem descending from above. Biblical prophecy depicts the messianic stone that will come down and strike the feet of the great man-made God, fashioned as an image in man's likeness. Scripture says this stone would bring down that gargantuan image of deified man. As I said at the onset of COVID, we must remember that what is good for the church is not always good for the world, and what is good for the world is not always good for the church. The church is too comfortable in Babylon. If Babylon were to remain a safe, palatable place for Christianity, the church would never be driven out like the children of Israel from Egypt. 
Zion would never find the wherewithal to cross the Red Sea, head into the wilderness, and seek a homeland beyond the confines of Egypt. And the church will never become what God has called her to be until she has been exiled from the world's cultures. But when the host cultures become too hot to endure, Zion will hear a voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. And I ask you to expand your thinking and try to imagine what it will look like for a kingdom to even come close to fulfilling the grand promises of the prophets. Could anyone honestly conclude that this restored kingdom amounts to no more than widespread recitation of the sinner's prayer or even multitudes of individual believers lost and intermingled in Babylon? I find it patently absurd to think such individualism could even remotely fulfill Peter's anticipation. Let's begin with the problem. Why do the present-day churches fall so far short of fulfilling the great prophecies for Zion? While Christianity already boasts the numbers, she has never realized what the citizens of this world have long known, that unity is the prerequisite for power. We look at Christian groups around the world and see the old denominations crumbling and on the verge of extinction. The Amish church is now larger than the Lutheran church in America. For the most part, these stodgy mausoleums of past glory have no vision, no sense of commitment or community, but simply served as adjuncts and chaplains to the broader society. They're as good as dead and will likely be gone within a generation. So what does that leave of Christianity? Pentecostalism is the fastest growing religion in the history of the world. 30,000 added each day to the Pentecostal movement. The Pentecostal movement has power, passion, fervor, and a mission. And yet they fail to see the need for their beliefs to shape their way of life, to incorporate economy, education, and the wholeness of an entire way of life. That is, to shape a unique culture distinct from the surrounding societies. They content themselves with powerful spiritual experiences and Bible-based creeds. Then there are the evangelicals, who largely represent a less sleepy version of their older mainline denominational cousins. They prize doctrine, education, and success, but relegate soteriology, salvation, to something entirely metaphysical, internal to the human experience, and not a lived reality or visible culture among people. Thus, they can never fulfill the corporate messianic prophecies. What about the Anabaptists? In contrast to all the rest, they do believe that one's faith should affect the entirety of one's life. They are lifestyle Christians whose belief shapes every sphere of their existence. However, they lack a unified authority due to their rejection of the ongoing and direct working of the Holy Spirit. They choose their ministers by casting lots, a practice that appeared to cease in the Church of the Acts once the Holy Spirit had been poured out. As a result, they are defined by disunity more than any other group. They will divide over the color of their buggy tops, the rubber on their wheels, or the shape of their suspenders. This is unfortunate because they could be the most potent, effective instrument of Christianity in civilization if they were unified. 
Because they have come to reject the anointing of the Holy Spirit, they have ceased to avail themselves of the only force capable of unifying them, and thus become buried in their carnal-minded independence. Some have the Holy Spirit, but reject the lifestyle. Others have the lifestyle, but reject the Holy Spirit. But none have the unity of the faith and the bonds of peace. They have not discovered the beauty of worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. These groups do, however, contain valuable knowledge and strength that will be crucial in the emergence of the Messianic nation once we lay aside all our labels and differences and come into that full measure that belongs to the full stature of Christ. The Apostle Paul promised that only in the dispensation of the fullness of times, in the end, will God gather all things that are in Christ under one head, things in heaven and things on earth. This suggests that a great unification is going to occur among Christian groups. This further implies that Christ's Lordship will oversee not only our heavenly notions and belief systems, but also things on earth, the practical spheres and necessities of human life and existence. You say, how is unity ever going to be possible in the church? Well, one means is that those who refuse unity are going to go extinct, like the denominations already are proving. The church cannot find unity because it is not truly submitted to the Holy Spirit. Only after all the counterfeits fail her and Western civilization collapses, when no hope remains in Babylon and Egypt, it will be only then that the church will begin to accept a level of submission and unity capable of forming her into the influence and witness God intended her to be from the beginning. But before that time, God will raise up Joseph and Moses ministries to prepare patterns and fill storehouses to see ahead and serve as forerunners. And the time for these ministries is now. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Smaller congregations throughout the world will carry out this Joseph Moses mission, those given a vision by God for what the larger aggregate is destined to face in the years to come. You have the privilege of being part of just such a Joseph congregation. Why are we here? Why have we been able to find the level of unity we presently enjoy? We are here because we are a collection of individuals whose faith in man, especially ourselves, has been utterly pulverized by the world, sin, and the harsh realities of life. In short, the present-day Joseph ministries comprise those who have spent time in the pit, in persecution, in prison, in hardship, and in personal tribulations. Bruised, disabused of all phony salvation systems, these have come together under the headship of Jesus, and their fruit is undeniable. But they are merely forerunners, 
preparing the way for the larger groups yet to go through the tribulations. In recent conferences and seminars, the question of what constitutes God's kingdom has often been asked. Essentially, God's kingdom is a society that is eradicating the spiritual control of the devil now prevalent on the earth. It is a collective environment where the ruler of this world is cast out and no longer reigns. In the book of Romans, it is stated that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This entails that righteousness, peace, and joy are not the product of Roman law or coercive force, but only the Holy Spirit. In Luke 10, Jesus is seen casting out devils, a practice which upsets the Pharisees greatly. They accuse him of using Satan's power to perform such miracles. But Jesus refuted their claims, saying it's not in the devil's interest to cast himself out, for a house divided against itself cannot stand. He added that if he casts out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon them. This is a huge statement. What is the kingdom of God? He says, if I cast out demons by God's finger, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When you pray, our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come, you're saying, God, cast out the spiritual power of the devil by your mighty finger. This means that wherever the Holy Spirit is at work to break demonic oppression, there the kingdom of God has become real. There is no kingdom of God in a cessationist church or environment. You have to have the movement and power and activity of the Holy Spirit to even conceive of this kingdom. Do you know where the phrase, the finger of God, comes from? In Exodus, Moses was sent to the courts of Pharaoh, armed with two expressions of God's authority, his mighty name, Yahweh, and an outstretched staff. As Moses began performing miracles, Pharaoh called for the Egyptian magicians to do the same, as if to say, Yahweh is no greater than these demons we worship in Egypt. However, Aaron's staff turned into a serpent and swallowed up the serpents of Egypt. Later, when Moses released an attack on the Egyptian empire in the form of a miraculous sign, a plague of gnats, ugh, the Egyptians were unable to match his spiritual power. And the Bible says, quote, The magicians said to Pharaoh, This is none other than the finger of God. This statement demonstrated the power of Yahweh invading the kingdom of the devil as expressed, incarnated through a political nation. So Jesus was tacitly referencing Moses' struggle against the gods of Egypt as if to say, I'm threatening you brood of vipers just like Moses did the snakes of Egypt and the gods that were judged in the Exodus. Of course, there's another place where the finger of God appears in response to a political nation attempting to take the place of God. This happens when Belshazzar takes the temple artifacts that his father Nebuchadnezzar had previously stolen and uses them for a drunken feast. Suddenly, the hand of a man appears and the finger of God begins to write on the wall. Mini mini tekel you farsim. This means you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting, as recorded in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. 
Throughout history, it seems that God's casting out finger appears when he intervenes to challenge the earthly embodiment of Satan's dominion in the form of tyrants, Egyptian wisdom, pharisaical human religiosity, or anything else that threatens the reign of the Holy Spirit. According to Jesus, when God's finger is casting out Satan, his kingdom has come. The kingdom we are called to seek and embody, thus serving as extensions of God's pointing finger when facing up to oppressors like Pharaoh, Babylon, or the Pharisees. The question about the kingdom's nature has become extremely controversial, but a scripturally consistent perspective is possible. Today, there are several conflicting kingdom models, namely the premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial views. Understanding these varied perspectives might help us frame and explore the kingdom's emergence. These terms all refer to the Lord's return and the time of the millennial kingdom when scripture indicates that God's people will reign with him upon the earth. So, Focus for a minute and stick with me, and I'm going to try to explain these in very simple, short phrasing that you can grasp and hopefully hold on to. The first millennial view is called premillennialism. Premillennialism contends that Jesus will return before the millennial kingdom is established on earth. Most of them believe there will be a rapture of the church prior to the time of tribulation. During this tribulation, when the church is with Jesus in heaven, masses of Jewish people will supposedly become believers. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus will return to the earth with his glorified saints and will, at that time, descend to enact a natural and earthly kingdom. He will rule on the earth from Jerusalem, and the whole world will see the wisdom of Christ manifested on the earth through a sublunary kingdom under the rule of Jesus and his church, with the nation of Israel being the center of the kingdom on earth. At the end of this thousand-year period, Satan will be released to lead a rebellion of the nations against Christ's kingdom, and Satan and all those who follow him will be destroyed. That is when the eternal realm of the new heaven and a new earth will appear. Advocates of this view fail to reckon with the many New Testament scriptures which show that the Lord's return marks the end of that realm of history and the initiation of the new heaven and new earth, as seen in 2 Peter 3, 1 Thessalonians 1, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Peter was referring to when in Acts 3 he said that the Lord would remain in heaven until the restoration of all things, the kingdom, spoken by the prophets of old. The second view is postmillennialism. It teaches that the Lord will return after the millennial kingdom but that this kingdom is to be understood as a sublunary kingdom in this world. Advocates of this view expect that most people on the earth will be saved in this natural kingdom. Increasing gospel success will gradually produce a time before Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of men and nations. All of this representing and fulfilling the kingdom promises Peter pointed toward. They maintain that the ethics of the kingdom should be implemented presently, and that the state is the means through which to achieve the objective. This particular ideology is favored by Reformed Christians and believers intimately involved in political causes like right to life and so on and so forth. Their vision is to establish a natural kingdom on the earth, and they see the state as one of the chief means through which to accomplish this goal. 
If they could force others to adopt their beliefs, they would not hesitate. While they effectively demonstrate that the kingdom of God is indeed for this present age, they overlook that God's people can never reign through forceful means. They ignore the seminal biblical reality of two distinct powers at play in the world, those of Caesar and those of Christ. Furthermore, they fail to grasp the significance of Christ's statement to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world, and thus operates as a wholly different alternative to the world's kingdoms founded on coercion and ruled by violence. So a third popular view is amillennialism. Like postmillennialism, it holds the belief that the millennial kingdom will take place during the current age and will be followed by Christ's return. Both views acknowledge that Christ's return will bring about the final judgment during which he will establish the new heaven and new earth for permanent reign. Amillennialists correctly perceive that Christ's reign is essentially spiritual, not of this world. But they erroneously infer that the kingdom will thus only manifest itself in ethereal, invisible realms with no tangible expression on earth other than the presence of individual believers in Jesus. The fourth, and I might add correct view of the millennium is called realized millennialism. This holds that Jesus will come back at the end of the current age to establish the new heaven and new earth, bringing about the eternal realm. They are in agreement with postmillennialism that the millennium kingdom is happening in the present, and with the amillennialists that Christ's millennial rule is essentially spiritual in nature. However, they differ from both postmillennialists and amillennialists who respectively believe that God's people reign through the world's institutions or only in a non-visceral, invisible realm. Realized millennialism holds that the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit will become visible and complete, manifesting as an alternative culture as the saints reign on earth through their devotion and obedience to God's anointed ecclesial design. By being transformed into the image of Christ, God's people can rule over the power of the evil one in their lives, both individually and corporately. In this way, the church presently functions as an alternative to the kingdom of this world, with every aspect of human life brought under God's dominion. Realized millennialists believe that the wisdom of Christ, not Caesar and statism, will be seen throughout the world through the church's voluntary alternative culture. The Lord's return and the initiation of the eternal realm will occur once all that is truly life as opposed to the power of death, is brought under subjection to Christ's feet in this present age. Spiritual Zion will have finally attained the final corporate witness of the full measure of the stature of Christ. So, realized millennialists believe that the kingdom is spiritual, but it is for this day. Just like Jesus said, if the power of the devil is being cast out by the power of God, then the kingdom is real. And that's how the millennium is real today, when the power of the evil one is being brought under subjection to Christ's feet, the church, individually and corporately. The kingdom of God has come upon us there. We contend that the kingdom's power is spiritual and manifested through practical means, as Paul said, in heaven and on earth. 
Jesus himself proclaimed, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God present with power. It is clear that Pentecost marks the seminal power event that launched the kingdom on earth. But what happened after Pentecost? Was there no practical, visceral, visible expression of this kingdom's birth? Did the believers simply return to their normal lives after receiving such a power from on high? No, immediately after speaking in tongues, there were practical and tangible changes in their corporate society. The book of Acts tells us all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. This shows how the spiritual Pentecostal experience produced real world implications in their daily lives, even redefining them as a group. Spiritual power and authority did not, in short, equate to ethereal, invisible realities, but quite the opposite. This demonstrates the principle of Christ's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Deeply intimate, numinous experiences were intended to manifest as real-world changes and realities that we would call the kingdom. But what became of this first kingdom? It sprang up, but before it could attain the full stature of Yahweh's house, being exalted above all other mountains, it became polluted by the world's kingdoms. In the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And again, but you have come to Mount Zion, the writer of Hebrews says, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, to the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of the blood of Abel. So, if, as this last scripture makes clear, the church is present-day Zion, what do we have to look forward to? Part of our dilemma is our usage of a somewhat antiquated word, kingdom. If we translated this into modern vernacular, we would most likely use the word state or government. Yet if Christians were to go around speaking about the state or government of Jesus, people would freak out. This gives us an insight as to why the Romans were so afraid of Christianity. They did not see it as a private belief, but as a kingdom, an existential threat to the Roman Empire. Christianity is supposed to be a messianic nation. Jesus didn't even try to avoid the similarity. He drew a stark contrast to Caesar's kind of power, but still chose to repurpose the very word gospel from the most powerful politician of his day, who had coined that term gospel to proclaim the coming of a total state, the gospel of Rome. If we were to translate into modern language Christ's use of gospel, 
a term linguists link to revolution and political campaigns, it would be similar to saying the uprising of our new country. Dream with me for a moment. Imagine a nation without boundaries, sewn into pockets of every political sphere of the earth, so coordinated with the headship of the spirit, with no rebellion or conflicts, that it would function as one man. Picture not just a few campuses throughout the United States in places like Texas, but innumerable locations spread across the globe where individuals can finally discover in Christ all that they previously sought in academia, economy, and nationalism. Can you envision it? What is it like? Would these be like reservations among nations where we would enjoy semi-autonomous liberties or self-governance? where we would use none of the power of the state, but create environments where the ethics and economy and education and life of Christ could flourish? Would it be a church? Would it be a movement? Or would it be a nation? I submit to you that it would be a nation. That's not my word. Peter said, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. He's speaking of the church in the way God formerly spoke of Israel. Paul says, you were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. But he tells the believers of his day, now you're not alienated from this commonwealth. That's like saying the state, like the commonwealth of Virginia, the nation of Israel. But now you're part of this nation, this predestined people with a predestined purpose on the earth. Peter combines spiritual and political terminology, priesthood and nation, in this stupendous statement. This isn't the politics of deception or the politics of coercion. It's the reign of God upon the earth. The Lord isn't going to come back for a congregation or two in a building or two. He will return for a holy nation of hundreds of thousands, if not millions. How must we expand our minds, change our gears, and rethink our strategies to prepare for what's coming? Babylon is shaking, but hidden in that tremendous confused system are countless Daniels and Shadrachs and Meshachs and Abednegoes. There's a remnant, and they're hearing the grinding of tectonic plates as the cultural tremors begin. He has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but heaven also. The words once more signify the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that the unshakable may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us be filled with gratitude and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. I ask, Paul said, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope of his calling the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe. Again, he said, so now through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God in all its countless aspects might now be made known revealing the mystery to the angelic rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Lord, where can we find the embodiment of your divine presence, your kingdom of righteousness, 
your holy mountain towering above all others. It's not a physical location, but a nation spread throughout the world where leaders and officials from every corner of the globe come to seek guidance and say, teach us your ways. Can we learn from you? We don't know what this kingdom will look like. We don't know what exact form or configuration it may assume. But if you bear a little folly, I can almost imagine having conversations with world leaders in the future where we would ask them to give us a reservation a land, sizable tracts, maybe hundreds of thousands of acres, where we can live unto the Lord as He has desired. We will explain to these host nations the jobs that will come to their area, the education, the tourism, the prosperity, the peace that would come in a region, and basically ask them, can you form some alliance with us, some agreement, where we have semi-autonomous control over this realm, but we'd pay you a flat tax or do something that would benefit the host nation, some kind of brokered contractual agreement. And no, I don't anticipate that this is going to be an abiding permanent solution. In the end, the two witnesses will lie dead in the streets. But I believe some great revelation of Zion is going to emerge before that time of final trouble and persecution. As I mentioned in the beginning, Peter says the heavens will receive Jesus until the time of the restoration of all things spoken of by the prophets. So what have the prophets foretold? Isaiah lived in a day of wickedness and apostasy. He protested the transgression of Israel, describing his contemporaries as more ignorant than beasts of burden. Quote, For the ox knows his master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know me. People do not understand. Alas, O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children of depravity, they have forsaken Yahweh, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, and turned their backs on Him. Isaiah likens rebellious Israel to a harlot, flirting as an exhibitionist, bedecked with the merchandise of trade from the world. He says Zion will become desolate, the very word Jesus later uses. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Foreigners devour your fields before you. A desolation demolished by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a city besieged. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. Isaiah prophesied that Zion would fail when her mighty men, judges, seers, counselors, craftsmen, and learned were exiled from her midst and carried away captive. And this is spiritually symbolic and indicative of what's going to happen to spiritual Zion, which is the church after Jesus. The prophet begged the Lord to tell him how long he was to proclaim Zion's impending doom. And the Lord responded, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitation, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord had removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But God kept speaking to this messianic prophet that he would reserve a remnant. Quote, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. 
but as the terebinth and oak have stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And this seed refers to the promise made to Abraham unto Isaac, the child of promise. This is the seed whom Christ was, and this is the seed that Paul tells the Galatians the church is. It is the destined people, the corporate elected people of God that Isaiah is referring to. And the majority is going to reject the truth. The majority is going to fall away. But even a tenth is a sufficient remnant to keep the seed alive in the ground and bring forth what God has promised. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. The fat of his body will waste away. It will be as when reapers harvest the standing grain, gathering the grain in their arms, as when someone gleans heads of grain in the valley of Raphaim. Yet some gleanings will remain, as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches, four or five on the fruitful boughs, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. In that day, people will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. So he's saying God is going to allow Israel's apostasy to release judgment on her that wipes the harvest out, that ends the harvest. But he says, as the enemy is going to take all the olives, but two or three, maybe even four or five olives are going to be left in the very tips of the tree. This indicates that the extremity, the extreme expressions on the outer tree of Christianity are where there's going to be a remnant remaining. Those that were considered extreme in the extremity. So the Lord showed through Isaiah that a remnant like four or five olives on the top of a bare tree would remain because most would be carried away with a mighty captive exile, quote unquote. But all this warning of doom, which spoke both to natural Israel and spiritual Israel, sets the stage for God's great restoration of his spiritual nation. He describes a time when those gleanings from the field and those few olives in the top of the tree will rise and grow to become the fullest expression of Zion, his covenant people, which the world has ever seen. Isaiah 49. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time, I have answered you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages, saying to those who are bound, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourself along the roads they will feed and their pastures will be on all bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. These are the springs Jesus spoke of in John when he talked to the woman at the well and again in chapter 7 when he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And John said he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. This is how the famine is broken, where they're wandering from north to south and east to west. When there's a famine for the word of God, he's saying it's going to be broken in Zion. Isaiah continues here in chapter 49. I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways will be raised up. 
Behold, these will come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Rouse yourself as in the days of old, when you slew Egypt, the dragon of the Nile. Are you not the same today, the one who dried up the sea? So the Lord is speaking through Isaiah, but then the Lord is speaking to himself. And he's saying to the God who called the children of Israel out of Egypt, rouse yourself as in the days of old, when you slew Egypt, the dragon of the Nile. Are you not the same today, the one who dried up the sea, making a path of escape to the depths so that your people could cross over? Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. Yes, I am the one who comforts you. So why are you afraid of mere humans who wither like the grass and disappear? So there's hope. This devastated Christianity is going to come back with greater joy and glory than ever imagined. All from the gleanings from the few olives in the tops of the tree. Isaiah 54 speaks of the future glory of Zion, the church, God's bride. Sing, barren woman, you who have never borne a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Yahweh will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your Lord. For a brief moment, I abandoned you. This describes the church losing her covenant relationship, her sanctity with God. Her sanctification broke off the marriage, just as when they were divorced from the Garden of Eden. So the church was divorced when she married the state in the Constantinian synthesis. But this describes the reunion. For a brief moment I abandon you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you, which means he hid his presence, the power of his spirit from them. That's what his face represents. For a brief moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah. This is the Lord speaking. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So he's saying that this separation, this church without the face and presence of God, it'll never happen again in history. Once the restoration comes about, Jesus predicted, he says, you will not see my face until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name and authority of God. But once that happens, that separation from the presence of God, the Lord vows it'll never happen again, just like the floodwaters will never cover the earth again. 
To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted. I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazulu. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. We know what those precious stones are, don't we? Because Peter said, we all, as lively stones, are being built together. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by Yahweh, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh, and this is their vindication from me, declares Yahweh. The Apostle Paul shows us that these promises belong to and are fulfilled by the new covenant church, whom he refers to as Jerusalem from above. But the Jerusalem above is free, Paul says. She is our mother. For to her it is written, and now he quotes these same passages from Isaiah, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is to this day. So the Apostle Paul shows us unequivocally that these Isaiah prophecies were intended for Zion, but Zion is the church. He shows us that the church is the seed still in the ground. That's why he says, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. And that word descendants is seed. You are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. This is the same Jerusalem Hebrew speaks of. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. And he goes on and says, it's the church. Isaiah says, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. This refers to nationalities, the multi-ethnic plurality of expression that will be evidenced in Zion. Peter didn't feel that this had happened in its full expression yet, but that when it did occur, the foundation stone would become the capstone. 
and the Lord would return. This allusion to the restoration of the return of Jesus is tied to Paul when he said, Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to our God and Father, when he has abolished all rule, all power, authority, and dominion. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And he tells us that the last enemy is going to be death. The church is Christ's feet, the one body of Christ. The head, being Jesus, is in heaven, and his feet are planted upon the earth, forming that veritable elevator shaft, Jacob's ladder, that connects the realm of heaven with the realm of earth. But the church has been given the power to reign until he comes, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord is going to return, and he's going to put an end to rule, power, authority, and dominion when the church brings all of the enemies of truth, all of the weapons of the devil under dominion to Christ's feet, which is his human expression here on earth. So when we find victory over all the schemes and mechanisms of a wily devil, that's when the capstone is going to return with shouts of God bless it. When we bring everything into subjection to Christ and the last enemy is vanquished, there will be no need for rule, power, authority, or dominion. Men and women will not submit one to another. Disciples and elders will not submit to one another. We will all just be the children of God. These expressions of authority and submission are necessary in a fallen world with fallen people as we bring everything under subjection to Christ. But when he returns, all that's going to be gone and it's going to be like the Garden of Eden again. Every time we gain a corporate victory over cultural sin, another enemy is put under Christ's feet and the return of the Lord gets closer. When the spiritual conquest of the church over the powers of the evil one is complete, then a building project that began with a precious cornerstone will culminate with a crowning capstone as Jesus returns amid shouts of God bless it, grace to it. For every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low the uneven ground will become smooth and the rugged land a plain and the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of Yahweh is spoken. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. This idea again is the notion of the church reigning over the power of the enemy, bringing even arguments and thoughts captive under the feet of the church, which is the body of Christ, so that the Lord may return. God will not punish the sinful until the righteous have been separated through sanctification from them. This is similar to the story of Lot being called out of Sodom so that the judgment could be released. Once the righteous are completely sanctified and separated, the evil will receive the punishment it deserves. God has promised to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We are involved in a cosmic struggle. And every kingdom of this world, every state, 
is an embodiment, is an incarnation, a corporate revelation of the power of Satan. But the church is God's one project. It is his one corporate answer, not to individuals, but to principalities and powers. The church is supposed to be the place where love triumphs over brute force, where all the things attempted by the institutions and states of man are achieved in the church, but without the compulsion, the fear, the manipulation, the evil of the evil one. So it's God's big answer to all the kingdoms of this world that lie under the control of the evil one. He doesn't say that this wisdom will be demonstrated in a forgotten street corner. It will be demonstrated to principalities and powers, the spiritual forces warring against Yahweh as seen in Daniel. And the final act will come when the church corporately brings to naught all the power of the enemy through its corporate expression. This has not yet happened on the level that the apostles described. For the writer of Hebrews says, yet all things are not presently subjected to him. That's our duty, to bring everything, speculations, arguments, thoughts, education, essentials of life, our relationships, our marriages, our families, every addiction, vices, temptations, under the dominion of Christ. Not by compulsion, that's statism, but by the power of the Spirit and love, that's the church. In the dispensation of the fullness of times, he will bring under one head all things that are in Christ. Is that where he ends the sentence? No, he goes on, things in heaven and things on earth. It's all encompassing, it's everything. Christians are willing to contemplate a kingdom that is strictly of heavenly minded things. But Paul says it's gonna be things in heaven and things on earth. So what I'm saying is that the church will not exit Babylon so long as she is comfortable and at peace there. The collapse of Western civilization will prove the catalyst for the church's exodus and final restoration. When she is driven out of Egypt, then she will accept the authority of the Spirit and begin to discover these epic promises predicting Zion's final revelation and worldwide maturity. However, God sends a remnant of the remnant ahead, a small group here and there, like Joseph and Moses, to do the work of filling storehouses, rediscovering God's patterns, and providing a spiritual sanctuary, building a spiritual ark for the approaching storms. In Psalms 105, it says, God called for a famine upon the land. He broke the staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, they afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord trusted to him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will, that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. This is that before God allowed the great collapse to come on his people, the famine of that day, Joseph was going through some personal things and preparing the way. 
I vividly remember when my mother, Brother Zafrir, Abraham, and I visited Brother T.W. Barnes, a highly respected prophet of the United Pentecostal Organization, back in 2003. During our visit, Brother Barnes shared with us about his calling to the ministry. He recounted a time when he was just 16 years old sitting on a grassy hill in Minden, Louisiana. He had a vision of a large gift-wrapped box descending from the sky. And the Lord said to him, I have called you and given you the gift of prophecy to be a mouthpiece for my people. That's what I've been. I've been a prophet, Brother Barnes said to us. But then he turned and said, But Brother Adams is an apostle. God called him with the call of Joseph to be a blessing to his brothers. The UPC doesn't use terms like apostle, and Brother Barnes had never heard of the prophecy given over my father 30 years before in Phoenix. But that prophecy in Phoenix gave the mission not only to my dad, but to this whole movement that he spearheaded. We were given the mandate of a Joseph ministry, called to the wilderness and waste places, but ultimately to fill storehouses with lost truths, truths and patterns that would help our brothers survive the tribulations approaching. Joseph was rejected he looked like he had lost his way. It looked like evil had triumphed over good and killed the dream inside. He was lied about and hated, but he served as a type of Jesus, wearing the coat of many nations, many colors. Mistreated in Egypt, he was thrown in prison, and it took a famine to get him out of there, out of the dungeon into the courts of Pharaoh. Then he married a Gentile bride, and together they brought salvation and food in a time of hunger, not just for his brothers, but for the whole world. This is a type of what we as Christians are called to be, to build storehouses, as the prophecies have said. Those seven years of plenty can be more discouraging than the seven years of famine because you start asking yourself, why am I doing this? What is this all about? The Lord says there is something coming that you can't even get your mind around at the present time. Stay faithful. The difference between who we were 50 years ago and who we are right now is no smaller than the difference between what we are now and what I'm describing in the future that God will call us to be part of. People get ready. You may say, we can't do that. Well, no, but that's the exciting part. God is going to do it through us and in spite of us. Don't you want to be part of that? When COVID shut the world down, I said famines have a way of ejecting Joseph's from the prison where they've been hiding. The troubles that are coming on the earth are going to bring the body of Christ out of the dungeon hall and into the courts of Pharaoh. That's an example of one of the kings of the earth turning to Zion and saying, teach us your ways. It's crucial that we pray and stay informed about the current political climate. Stay aware of the foundations that are crumbling in our society. It's evident that the very foundations of Babylon are crumbling around us. Nevertheless, we're not alone as Christians. There are many, many others who remain devoted to the Lord and refuse to bend their knee to Baal. As we speak, worshipers of Yahweh are taking a stand in school meetings, objecting to the propaganda being fed their children. Soon they're going to be hearing a voice saying, Come out of her, my people. There are hundreds of thousands of Mennonites and Amish 
wondering why they don't experience the power of God like their Anabaptist forefathers once did. And yet there are some already hearing the voice of the Lord in places like Wisconsin. Let the voice go forth to the ends of the earth. Well, Joseph, you will say, you're too small. You're just one man. But God will save by many or by few. Joseph, you're too weak. But God says, I know that you only have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will open and none can shut. I will shut and none will open. But Joseph, you don't have enough time, but the Lord will do a quick work. For him, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. In Revelations, the church of the last day is described as the sons of fresh anointing spoken of by Zechariah. These two witnesses, the book of Revelations shows us, stand upon the earth representing the Gentile and Jewish cultivated and wild olive branches of the faith. The ministry of these witnesses comes in two phases. First, they will operate in unparalleled power, glory, and witness. And lastly, they will suffer persecution and the great tribulation to reveal that love is stronger than death and the church has overcome the fear of death by which the devil holds all humanity in bondage according to hebrews 2:14. but before the great tribulation the church as these two witnesses will experience unprecedented restoration and miraculous power this glory of zion will trigger satan's wrath because the devil himself realizes that his time is short why does he think his time is short? Because the church's witness in that final restoration season will prove so effective as to guarantee Satan's total defeat across the entire earth if Zion were permitted to continue to flourish. That's what we've got to be anticipating until the church as a unified, restored body, a holy nation upon the earth, until that is making the devil scared and making him believe that his time is running out, we haven't seen the restoration as it's been promised. In short, we will see a great reunion that precipitates a great outpouring of spiritual power. Just as on the day of Pentecost, when the church of the last day becomes of one mind and one accord, great power will fall from heaven. There will be no more denominations, sects, or divisions. The Holy Spirit will sovereignly bring together all things that are in Christ under one head. We will witness tears of reconciliation and sweet embraces as long-lost brothers reconnect. The networking of Christ's body will surpass all imagination. Those we once considered enemies will prove to be our friends. God's restoration of Zion will be more brilliant than rubies, more magnificent than the courts of Solomon, an awe-inspiring display as the world has never seen. Nations will see Zion's righteousness and all kings her glory. You will be called by a new name which the mouth of Yahweh will bestow. You will be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the palm of your God. No longer will you be called forsaken, nor your land named desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be his bride. As the trouble shakes you up 
and makes you nervous at night, just remember, as darkness increases, the light is going to shine forth all the brighter. Zechariah says, at evening time there will be light, and on that day living water will flow from Jerusalem. These are the same living waters Ezekiel is speaking of in the final temple. Those who dwell in the valley of the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. So the darkness is scary, but it predicts the emergence of a bright beacon that is going to become a city set upon a hill that cannot be hidden. As the church mourns in Babylon presently, we, the pioneers, are filled with anticipation for the approaching exodus towards Judea. Hailing from Europe, we are the forerunners who have set our sights on the westlands of Palestine, where we tirelessly work to drain the swamps, build the roads, plant the crops and trees. Our gaze returns again and again to the horizon, waiting and watching for the remnant's return. Our efforts are met with mockery and marginalization by those who still cling to life in Europe, such as it was before World War II or in Babylon today. To them, our aspirations seem foolish and naive, but we continue to toil away in our Zionist camps, driven by a dream we cannot ignore or escape. The dreamer still lives, even though he may be in the dungeon or in the swamps of Palestine. In 1948, after enduring immense tribulation, those who once could not submit or even find the slightest hope of unity looked to the shores of a better country and the promise of their own culture and land. The rebirth of natural Israel predicts the rebirth of spiritual Israel. In like manner, spiritual Zion will once again consume the hearts and minds of God's people. It will be a dream they cannot awake from. They will come from east and west, driven by the terror of Babylon's collapse. They will bless the names and memories of all those through the years who gave their lives to rebirth a nation from a desert before the world had turned against the church. We are those people. They will come to dwell in houses they did not build. Let us build those houses. They will feast on vineyards they did not plant. Let us be busy planting those vineyards. They will drink from wells that they did not dig. Let us continue digging those wells. And we, the Halutzim, meaning the Aliyah pioneers, will be there, or at least our children and grandchildren will be there to welcome them to the shores of God's country. A spiritual place, a holy nation, not a geographic region. Ours is the task of pilgrimage, pioneering a way through the wilderness, forging a walkable course of obedience back to the patterns of Yahweh and of life. Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. Blessed are those who leave Babylon before the new Pharaoh ascends, before the bricks and whips and plagues and deaths of the firstborn. Blessed are those who prepare the way of the Lord. We, as at the beginning 50 years ago, are the voice of those shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. But this won't be a desert forever. Isaiah 35 says, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. That's how Palestine felt when the first Aliyah pioneers started coming over. The wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom 
Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shouts of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious hearts, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way. And fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go upon it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. God help us. Help us to fix our eyes on these eternal promises. Promises hidden in Christ's wisdom and God's plan for ages immemorial, but that are now starting to be revealed in our time.